Good morning. Good to have you all here for our first hymn. We'd like to see you turn to page 127. Wonderful grace of Jesus. today I can see it much better <laughs> I'm trying to leave these songs <laughs> uh, let's see 
Let's open, go ahead and open up in prayer before we go to the next hymn. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you so much, Lord, for just your goodness towards us and for all that you do. Thank you for the beautiful day you've given to us so far. We just thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to be in your house where we can come and sing praises to you and, and listen to your word be preached, Lord, by our pastor. We just thank you for him and all his wonderful work that he does. And we ask you, Lord, just continue this blessing and watching over him and, and this church, Lord. We do ask for your blessing upon the rest of this service and just continue this blessing this day. For Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, the next song is number 119. Great is thy faithfulness. It's a pretty long song, so I just sing the first and third stanzas of it. for this morning. In August, the first week, Sunday in August, we'll start the meals back up again. And hopefully Pastor will be able to bring the second message, the this afternoon message for us starting on that week too. And we're still saving up for the swing set, which we should be getting pretty close to that. I know it's been on order and so we're just waiting for that to come in. And I think that's about it for the Announcements. About it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do the memory verse. It's in your bulletin. This verse, Psalms one nineteen sixty eight. Let's do it twice. 
Okay, Psalm 119, 68. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Psalm 119, 68. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Okay, for the next hymn, we'll turn to O Magnify the Lord, hymn number 25. Pastor and praying partners, Psalm 105, for the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. It says, thank you for all your prayers and unwavering support to my family and the ministry that the Lord has called us to serve. Bendu and I came down with the virus. I was seriously sick to the point of death. I had a cough, I had a cough fever, chest pain, and pressure. The most difficult part was the shortness of breath. Because I am a diabetic, it was really hard to control my diabetes. Mm -hmm. The saddest part here is we do not have good medical centers in Liberia. The health system is very poor. We were cared care by one of our church members who happens to be a nurse. My wife had loss of taste and smell with headache, but her illness didn't last as long as mine. I'm still recovering from it, and we do need your prayers. Certainly, we have closed down the Christian school due to the spread of the virus, and have asked the kids to work from home. We also ask any of our church members who are feeling sick to stay at home. Our church is not closed for now. We continue meeting in little groups. 
It is our prayers that the Lord will continue to protect his people and that we all will remain faithful in these difficult times in our lives. It says, in this earth, the Gabendas, your missionaries to Liberia and West Africa. So we're grateful in this country that we do have such a good medical <laughs> facilities and stuff. There's one, seems to be one in every corner that you can go to, but many countries don't have that, and we should be grateful for the thought that, that we have this, this medical attention here. So our last thing will be 158. God will take care of you. If you'd all stand for this one. Good to see you all out. Uh, started my uh, outpatient physical therapy, and uh, they told me I didn't have to use the walker anymore, but I have to use a stick. So I'm walking around with a stick, and so slowly improving. Philippians chapter 1. There you go. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be starting uh, 
a series in Philippians as we work through our other, other series. So we're in Philippians 1. Many of you may know that um, the theme of Philippians has to de- deal with joy. Joy, and it seems like Paul goes, talks about joy. The Greek word translated joy uh, means an inner gladness, a deep pleasure which comes from an inner assurance and confidence that God does all things for his good purposes. So joy is not really focused upon ourselves. Joy is focused upon God and our response to his goodness. And throughout the book of Philippians, Paul talks about joy he, he may use the word joy, or he may use the word rejoice, but he talks about joy. Just let, let me read you a few verses. Um, Philippians 1.4, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. 1.18, what then, notwithstanding everywhere, wherein in pretense or in truth, Christ is priest, therein I do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Uh, 1.25, having this confidence, know that I shall abide and continue with you. For all your faithfulness and joy of faith, 2 2, fulfill ye my joy, Philippians 2 17. Yea, and if I be authored upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all, 2 18. For the same cause also ye do rejoice, 2 28. I sent him therefore more than carefully that, you see, that ye may see him again and may rejoice. And throughout the book of Philippians, you see this theme coming back and back of joy. And it should be one of the parts of our Christian life. What, what is one of the fruit of the Spirit? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And so that should be part of our life. There's told, there's told a story about a little boy in church with his mother. He was a good little boy, quiet and well-behaved. He didn't cause any problems. But every once in a while, he would stand up in the chair and turn around and look at the people behind him and smile at them. His smile was infectious, and soon everybody behind him was, was starting to smile back at him also. It was all going fine until the woman mother realized what the little boy was doing. When she did, she grabbed him by his ear and twisted it a bit and told him to sit down and remember that he was in church. Then he started sniffling and crying, and she turned to him and said, That's better. This writer says, It's sad, isn't it? But many people have the impression that when we come to church, that it is all gloom and doom, and there is nothing here really to, to bring joy into our lives. So the first chapter, and so um, this attitude of joy and this result of joy is, is actually the result of certain attitudes, and those attitudes are mentioned in the first eight verses of chapter one. And, and so, notice um, this. What is the it in the following statements? It is the advanced man of our true selves. Its roots are inward, but its fruit is outward. It is our best friend or our worst enemy. It is more honest and more consistent than our words. It is an outward look based on past experience. It is a thing which draws people to us or repels them. It is never content until it's expressed. It is the librarian of our past. It is the speaker of our present. It is the prophet of our future. And what is it? It's our attitude. Attitude. Attitude is so important. And Paul's goal in the the first eight verses 
was to show that right attitudes would produce something in the lives of believers. And for us who are believers, he wrote about attitudes that would produce joy. And so if we're practicing these attitudes in our lives, there will be a consequent joy, a fruit of the Spirit. And so what we want to look at this morning as we look at these verses is that right attitudes lead to real joy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that as we start the book of Philippians again, I pray, Lord, that the truths would be fresh and that we would be challenged and encouraged in our walk with you and that we would have an infectious joy that would reach out into the hearts and lives of those around us, particularly those who know not your son, because they have no real joy. And so I pray, Lord, bless today. May the truth be clear, and may we hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us in your word. In your son's name, amen. So verses 1 and 2 actually form an introduction to the epistle. So let's look at those. I have verse 1 translated this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now we have Paul starts off this letter like, like he tim- typically does in his letters. He starts off with his name, Paul. Now we don't normally write letters like that. We put our, we put our, our, uh, our name at the end of our letters. But in their day, they put their names at the beginning. So you knew who they were from. Now he says, Paul and Timothy. Now Paul was also known as Saul, as you may know. And so he was personally commissioned by Christ on the Damascus Road. And many of us are familiar with that. He was, write, he was a writer of many of the books in, in the New Testament, the epistles. And as he was writing Philippians, he was in a Roman jail. You know, and then which is kind of odd because, you know, he's, what's, what's his topic again? Joy. So in his affliction, he was rejoicing. He speaks of Timothy. Timothy was a close associate of Paul. He was his son in the faith. Look at chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned in your welfare. Very close, and, and Paul put a lot of trust in Timothy. Now he says, Paul and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ. That Greek word translated servants it can, can be translated bond slave, bond slaves. One writer had these words. This is in contrast to his epistle to the Galatians where he was defending his apostleship. He began with Paul, an apostle. He did the same thing to the Corinthians. He had to declare and defend his apostleship and wanted them to know he was apostle, not of men, neither by man. He didn't need to defend himself with these Philippians. They loved him, and they accepted his apostleship. They had, had, all had been led to the Lord by him. So Paul takes a humble place in his rightful position. Paul and Timothy, we both are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a bond slave was a willing slave who was happily and loyally linked to his master. And Paul says, I and Timothy have been bought with a price, and we are owned by our master. We are bond slaves, and we are happy in being slaves to our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only um, Paul and Timothy, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you also are his bond slave. 
For example, in 1 Corinthians 3.23, Paul writes, Ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 7.22. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Now, Paul says we are bond slaves, but he doesn't stop there. He says we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And so when he, when he added that, that Christ Jesus, he accomplished two things. He directs the attention to his Lord and away from himself and from Timothy. He's, what he is saying when, I, when he says, bond slaves of Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus is all important. The second thing he does is this. He focused the, the light upon his heavenly master rather than upon Rome, which, which, which is where he was. Rome was considered itself to be the master of the earth. And he is saying, not, no, not Rome. Jesus Christ is the master. Then he goes on, to all the saints. That, that Greek word literally means holy one or one set apart. Do you, do, you do realize that the human family is separated in two groups, the saints and the ain'ts, okay? If you're born again, you're a saint. And if you're not born again, you ain't, okay? And a saint was someone, was, is someone who, the Lord has been, who the Lord has set apart to glorify him. Then he says, saints in Christ Jesus, in Christ. That typically in, in the New Testament, when you see the word in, not always, but typically, the word means in the sphere of. So they are saints in the sphere of Christ. And this speaks of our, the, our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. Now, it's written to the overseers. Now, that, what, what, what we're, that is just a, a Greek way of, or um, oh, uh, one of the ways to express the word pastor. So it was written to the pastors and deacons. And so overseer was a term used to emphasize the leadership responsibility of those who were pastors. Now, we have, we have overseers, we have elders, we have pastors. All three of those words in the New Testament refer to the same office the pastor or pastors of a local church. And so we find, that, like, for example, in, in um, Acts 20, verse 17, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Then a little bit later on in verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed, by the way, that Greek word means to pastor, okay, to pastor the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So the New Testament uses those terms interchangeably to the same office. And so there's no such thing as having a hierarchy in a denomination where you have pastors in the local churches, then you have bishops ruling several local churches and you know, everything else. You know. that, that's not New Testament. New Testament is local churches being led by a pastor, teacher, overseer, elder. Okay, Same office. To the deacons. That word translated deacon is from a Greek word meaning table servants, one who serves a table. And so the emphasis of the office of deacon is that of servant. 
And the first time it's the, when, when the office was instituted, that's what they were called. They were called deacons and they were servants. That's in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. Wherefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. But we will desert, desert, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostle says, we're going to pray and we're going to, we're going to minister the word. But we need someone to administer the programs of the church for the needy. And so we have these men called who are deacons. Then we get to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is what we call the salutation of the letter or the greeting of the letter. Notice how Paul starts it. He says, grace to you and peace. Notice the order. I think the order is important because, you know, in, in several of his greetings in his, in his epistles, he starts with grace and peace. Grace is God's spontaneous, unmerited favor. Peace is the result of grace, the conviction of reconciliation through the blood of the cross and its true spiritual wholeness and prosperity. So notice, the, again, the order. It's grace then peace. We will never know true peace until we have experienced the grace of God and salvation. And so we understand when he says grace and peace from our God our Father, he says our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That means Paul was identifying the, the Philippian believers with him and Timothy. We all have the same uh, heavenly Father and the same Lord Jesus Christ. And so, to whom is Paul writing? To believers. And so, the principles taught in, in Philippians are mainly applicable to believers. And we can't expect the world to be living according to the commands and precepts of Philippians, because they cannot. But we should be expecting those of us who call our, ourselves believers to be living by them. So, let's get to the attitudes. Verse 3 is the attitude of thanksgiving. The attitude of thanksgiving. I have it translated this way. I am thanking God upon every remembrance of you. Paul begins the body of this letter in a very lovely manner, which reveals the sweet relationship between Paul and the Philippian believers. And in fact, this... Of all Paul's writings, this is probably the writing that has only one slight mention of a negative. And it was odious and soon touchy at the end when he talked about them not being of one mind in the Lord. And so uh, that, that, that's kind of, kind of the, maybe the only negative. And he had to criticize some, um, some um, uh, Judaists, those who, who were emphasizing the law. And he talks about that a little bit later, too. Now, notice the action. I am thanking. That means to give or express thanks. The Greek word sounds like our English word, Eucharist. Eucharist. Okay, you remember when they talk about the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper? Well, that's speaking of thanksgiving. And so that's what we're talking about. And it's present tense. I am giving thanks continually. As a matter of course, I am giving thanks to God. That's the direction. Not just giving thanks, but giving thanks to God. You know, people go around this world and say, you know, just be thankful. No, really, that's not quite part of the truth. The truth is, be thankful 
to God. It makes all the difference. The focus of thanksgiving is upon God. Now, why is this important? Well, it shows dependence upon God. It gives glory to God. And it acknowledges the sovereignty of God. When I'm, when I'm thankful to God, you know, in everything give thanks. Remember, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, that means I, 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 rec- I recognize the sovereignty of all the circumstances of my life. Now notice how he says, I'm thanking God upon every remembrance of you. That's when. In remembrance of you. Paul, when he thinks of the Philippian believers, all of a sudden he is thankful. Even in prison, I notice this. Paul's thoughts were directed towards others. He wasn't focusing upon his, oh, woe is me, poor soul, I'm stuck in prison for the faith. No, he was concerned and he was thinking about others. And one writer says about 10 years had passed since Paul had first worked among them. But the passing of time had not diminished his love or interest in them. Every time Paul thought of them, he thanked God for him. And so this Thanksgiving that Paul was talking about was prompted by the joyous memory he had of his Philippian friends. He remembered leading some, many of them to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He remembered their eagerness to learn the word of God. And he remembered how they helped him on his missionary endeavors. The church at Philippi was one of the few faithful churches that kept on supporting him as a, through all the time he was a missionary and still supporting him while he was in prison. My question for you and me is this. Is there someone we know when we think of him or her, we are immediately filled with thanksgiving? Well, that's the way Paul was. And that should be the way with us. That when we remember one another, it should be with an attitude of thankfulness. And that thankfulness will bring joy. The second attitude is this, verses 4 through 5, the attitude of caring. I have verse 4 translated this way. I'm sorry, it should be just verse 4. Always in all my prayers, in behalf of all of you, with joy when offering my prayers. Paul was a person who prayed seriously. And and so the word translated prayer primarily means a wanting or a need, an asking, a supplication. And it's always in the New Testament, it is always addressed to God, this particular word. And so plea, prayer, request, petition. It's not praying generally to something, to a higher being. It's praying to God in particular. And notice how Paul prayed. He says, with joy. Paul prayed with joy. Paul is a happy prisoner as in Philippi when he and Silas sing songs of praises at midnight, though in prison. And joy speaks of his delight, his gladness, his experiencing of happiness. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the words joy or rejoice occur in many times throughout this book. It actually occurs about 18 times in 14 verses in the King James. For Paul, intercession was not a burden to be borne, but an exercise of his soul to be performed with joy. It wasn't a burden. 
you know, he, he was excited to go before his God and pray. And it caused him joy when he prayed for the Philippian readers. Now, when we think of certain people, are, are we um, without joy? And there's some people, I know there are people that have hurt us. I, I know personally for myself. You know, when we think of certain people, are we full of bitterness towards them? Is there deep-seated anger in our soul against someone? You know what we need to do? We just simply need to pray for them. Because in that prayer for others, even those that hurt us, God will give us joy. Someone wrote these words, Nothing can so quickly cancel the frictions of life as prayer. If you find yourself growing angry at someone, pray for him. Anger cannot live in an atmosphere, atmosphere of prayer. And bitterness and uh, a spirit of wanting to get even, they can't live in an atmosphere of prayer. That's the attitude of caring. The attitude of sharing is in verse 5. In view of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The Greek word for translated fellowship has the ideas of sharing or partnership. And I, I like that word, partnership. Paul and his readers had a partnership in the gospel. There was a close bond between them. Do you remember how the Philippian church started? Let me read you from Acts 16, verse 6 to 12. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region and have been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out the sea from Troas, we, came, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And it was actually a a very important Roman colony, and many soldiers who retired from the Roman army, army, you know where they retired to? Philippi. Just like many would retire to down south to someplace. Okay? And so this church in Philippi was the first church established in Europe. And two familiar people were, were saved. Do you remember Lydia, the seller of, of purple? And after that was the Philippian jailer. You know, Paul told him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so, and so this church had a special place in Paul's heart. And they also had an active participation together in the gospel. They were in partnership. And how is this partnership to be manifested? Well, one writer notes the following. There is a fellowship a partnership of grace, a gift from God. There is a partnership of faith for those who trusted Jesus for salvation. There is a partnership in prayer and thanksgiving, in praying together and for one another. 
There is a partnership of believers with one another, loving one another in Christ. There is a partnership in helping each other. Hence, also a partnership in contributing to each other's needs. There is a partnership in promoting the work of the gospel. That's an active cooperation in gospel activity. There is a partnership in separation. One writer says, a fellowship over against the world. Attachment to Christ always means detachment from the world. That is, from worldly thoughts, purposes, words, prayers, etc. And then, finally, there is a partnership in warfare. Believers struggle side by side against a common foe, the devil. Now, and so when we come to church, it should not be for what we can get out of it. Not, no, not, we should be getting something out of it, but that should not be our primary goal for coming to church. You remember that old acronym that, that, had, the, that, that had the letters for joy, J-O-Y? You remember what it said? It said, Jesus, others, then you. That's what joy is all about. It's Jesus, others, then you. And so, do we really desire to be with God's people? Do we do that? Do we desire participation and fellowship with one another? There are those, you know, and I praise God for them, they actually reach out and fellowship with others. Now, let us be reminded, we meet as a church primarily for the word of God, but secondarily to fellowship with other believers and to reach out to our visitors. A family had gone to the movies, and on the way in, the young men of the family stopped by the refreshment stand to pick up some popcorn. By the time he got into the theater, the lights were already dim. He scanned the theater and evidently couldn't find his family. The lady who tells the story says she watched him pace up and down the aisles, searching the crowd in the near darkness. As the lights began to go down even further, he stopped and asked out loud, Does anyone recognize me? And, and the guy who was related to the story said, I used, I used the story to suggest that as people come into our church, they are looking for family and companionship. And often as they stand neglected in the church, in the deepest recesses of their hearts, they are crying out, does anyone recognize me? And we should have a burden for people we don't know in our congregation. You know, if there's someone here today or you know, in, the, in the near future that you've never talked to personally, I would encourage you to at least say hello to them because they may be looking for something and maybe you can help them with that. We get to verse 6 and we have the attitude of affirming. I have it translated this way, being persuaded of this very thing because the one who began in you a good work will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, I am convinced, I am convinced that God, that what God has begun in you, he will finish. He says, I am persuaded or convinced that, and it says, who has begun this good work or who has initiated will carry to completion. And he talks about the good work. The good work which God had begun in, within the hearts and lives of the Philippians was that of grace, whereby they had been transformed. So Paul's saying this, since God started this good work, he can be trusted to complete it. 
What does that include? Well, it, it includes a faithfulness that will never be removed. That's that good work. Psalm 138.8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. God, there is a faithfulness that, that God has towards us that will never be removed. The good work also includes a life that will never end. John 3.16 talks about eternal life. There, this good work speaks of a spring of water that will never cease to bubble up within the one who drinks of it. John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a water of springing up to eternal life. This good work speaks of a gift that will, can never be lost, will never be lost. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This good work also speaks of a hand out, hand out of which the good shepherd's sheep will never be snatched. John 10, 28. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This good work speaks of a chain that will never be broken. Romans 8, 29-30. For those he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This good work includes a love which we shall never be, from which we will never be separated. Romans 8, 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate from us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This good work also includes a calling that will never be revoked. Romans eleven twenty nine. for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This uh, good work speaks of a foundation that will never be destroyed. 2 Timothy two nineteen. nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are, those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And finally, this, this good work includes an inheritance that will never fade out. 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to re be revealed in the last time. God's good work that he has begun with you, he promises to faithfully complete it at the day of Christ, the day when we die or when Jesus comes again. Now, what's the practical application of this? Well, in light of this going on completion by God in us, this continually completion by God in us, we remember, need to remember this. All of us who name the name of Jesus are souls under renewal and reconstruction. We're all at different levels of spirituality, at spiritual levels of growth. And so when we look at some fellow believers, what do we see? Do we see a pain, a bother, a troubler? Someone who is below our notice? Someone who is full of sin? Someone to bicker and complain about? Or do we see a person for whom Christ died? A person whose life Jesus is in the process of repairing and restoring? A person who someday will be like Christ? And, and instead of tearing down another child of God, would it not be better to affirm him or her? 
And we need to be doing that. In a world where people are finding themselves being rejected in so many ways, and that's happening all around us, all the time, it is vital that they find the affirmation that is in Christ through the ministry of our local church and our people. The attitude of affirming. And when we are in that practice of affirming others, we will find that we will be rejoicing in the Lord. There is an attitude of sharing in verse 7. Just it is right for me to think this concerning you all because you have me in your heart, both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all being my fellow partakers of grace. Being tenderly loved by his readers, we find that's what Paul was saying. Paul says, I know you love me. I know that you truly have me in your hearts. You showed it to me when I had to go to jail, you know, when I had to defend myself, when I preached the reality of the power of the gospel. Paul also says, you are partakers of me, of grace. And what he's talking about, remember, get great, another one of the translations of the word grace in the New Testament is the word gift. You gave to me in my need. I was in prison. You know, you know they didn't have the same kind of prisons we have today where everything that a prisoner wants just about is provided for them. They had to have some outside means to be provided. And the Philippians helped in that. In his ministry, throughout, throughout his ministry, the Philippians had helped him out. And during his imprisonment, the, the Philippians sent Paul money, and they sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus to serve him and support him. And so thus sharing in God's gracious blessing in his ministry. When he was hurting, when he was down, the Philippian church was there to share in his burdens. Has not God called us to do the same thing with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we know someone among us who is hurting, who is going through pains of life on earth, who is just about to quit the Christian life? So are we willing to take a chance to reach out, to share, to uphold, to build up? And when we do that, we will have joy. And then verse 8, we have the attitude of compassion. For God is my witness, as I am longing for you all in the compassions of Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul begins his verse. For God is my witness. And so what he's saying, what follows in the, in, after this is not something that I say very lightly. I really, truly mean it with all my heart. So he appeals to the God who cannot lie. He emphatically calls upon his God to bear witness to the genuineness of his, of his feelings for the Philippians. Paul says, I long for you. I deeply desire to see you and commune with you. I yearn to be in your presence and to help you in your walk with Jesus. And he strengthens that thought with the phrase, in the compassions of Christ Jesus. Now, when he uses the word compassions, he's talking about intense emotional feelings. And he says, this is the way Christ felt when he was dealing with people. In Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Matthew 20, 34, so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. 
Paul says this simply, I love you just as Jesus loves you. That's what he's saying. That's, all he, that's simply what he's saying. And he, what he's doing, he's teaching that his love was patterned after and energized by Christ's indwelling love. And so it wasn't, it wasn't just an empty statement. It was something with real meaning. By the way, do we feel that way about God's people? Are they a bother? Or do we really, truly care for them? Do we have a heart of compassion? And not on just some, but on all. Paul wrote this in, in Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. The compassion, the attitude of compassion will bring us joy. Now, I've been talking about attitudes. Again, are they important? We need to realize that they are. Dr. Sw uh, Charles Swindoll wrote these words. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or, or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the, fast that the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. And our attitudes are vital. A friend of Vance Havener, who was a pretty well-known preacher before he passed away, coined a word by, by combining the words squelch and quench. He used to say, don't squinch the spirit. Havener thought it was so descriptive that he often used it in his preaching. He said, we squinch the spirit in more ways than we suspect. We do, do so when we, when we stifle the desire to speak or act in, for the Lord, when we criticize or discharge others by an unspiritual attitude, we throw cold water on their inner fire. We have the Holy Spirit as an honored guest in every Christian gathering, and he can be grieved very easily a frivolous attitude, a rebellious frame of mind, or a fed-up complacency will do it. Again, as we've been looking at this passage, I've reminded us several times that attitudes that Paul talks about in this passage can and will produce joy. And so those attitudes, those right attitudes of thanksgiving, of caring, of fellowship, of affirming, of sharing, and of compassion are so vital for us to have joy in our lives and to bring joy into the lives of others. Let me close with this quotation. Joy is turning into what God is turning into what God is do I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Joy is tuning into what God is doing around you. Seeing the world through his eyes, picking up on his delight in us as his children. Anyone can find happiness for a while. Happiness depends upon what is happening to you. Joy is different. Joy goes deeper. Joy is when your whole being sings because you have got, 
you have caught a glimpse of God at work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. I pray that you help us to be those who rejoice. And I know sometimes circumstances are really bad. And sometimes the pain is so deep and it hurts so much. And even in the midst of that, we can rejoice as we see you work in our lives. And Father, help us to have the right attitudes, the attitudes that will produce joy in our hearts and joy in the lives of others. In your son's name, amen. Please stand with me and turn to hymn number 474. We'll sing the first stanza of I'd Rather Have Jesus. 474. Turn their fashion. Rather have Jesus, silver or gold. I'd rather be it than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be by his name. Than to be the gift of a vast domain and be held in spread I'd rather have Jesus than anything this Thanks for being with us today. May the Lord give you a blessed week.